Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, 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 and welcome, ladybirds and gentle lemurs, to the Human Nature Podcast. Here we explore the ups and downs of being Homo sapiens and learn a thing or two on how to be a better animal. My name is Elliot Connor, and I'm at least half elephant. But the star of the show today is none other than John Mitchinson, a TV producer, author, researcher and rather a lot else, I gather. Welcome, John. Uh, lovely to be here, Elliot. Great. And the animal you've chosen to speak about today is none <laughs> other than the tardigrade. I was sure this was going to come up sometime <laughs> down the line. Uh, but it's going to be a fascinating conversation for sure. So do you want to give us a quick rundown on why you chose the tardigrade to talk about? Uh, like a lot of people, uh, I've spent most of my life and I'm now in, I think, my sixth decade, however you count it, uh, not knowing remotely that tardigrades existed. And yet they are everywhere. They exist in almost every um, uh, ecosystem on Earth, from the tops of mountains to Antarctica to the bottom of the ocean. They are small, very small. I mean, you can only see them with a microscope. Um, and they have their own phyla. They're, a, they're, an, an, they're an animal apart. Um, but they're also incredibly interesting incredibly resilient um, uh, and once you get to know about them you can't really you you, you you sort of become obsessed with them there's so much to say about tardigrades and in the early kind of days of QI when John Lloyd and I were sort of researching I think it was the very first conversation we'd had about this crazy idea for a TV show dedicated to interestingness he talked to me about tardigrades I'd become mildly obsessed with them and we discovered there was only one published book about them, The Biology of Tardigrades, which he bought me for the very first, uh, very first Christmas present for uh, the QI library. So um, they've been a kind of pet enthusiasm of mine, and I've written about them and talked about them over the years, and I still find them heroic, um, uh, you know, in a way that some animals sort of seem to me to be heroic because uh, they're everywhere, they're very successful, we don't, most people don't know about them, and we spent most of the last sort of hundred years trying to prove that they are that they are destructible and they seem more or less to be as close to indestructible as an animal gets and i can talk to you more about that but that's why i just say i find them heroic and there's something about animals that are so small that always kind of you know you, you either find that repellent or you find it you find it intriguing and i'm afraid i'm one of the people who find the smaller a thing is the more intriguing i find it so that's the tardigrade so far 
I mean, if people want to know exactly what they are, I suppose in terms of evolution, they're somewhere between the annelid worms, very simple worms, and insects. Um, they've got six legs. They're sometimes known as water bears or moss piglets. You find them wherever there's water, there are tardigrades. And tardigrade itself means slow stepper because they're not very fast. The reason they're called water bears is they move a little bit like bears, sort of with their, their six limbs. So there you go. Awesome. Yes. And uh, you mentioned QI, uh, which is this brilliant uh, British TV show uh, you've been running for. It must be over a decade now, a long, long time. Yes. I mean, John Noyne sort of had the idea, I think, even well over 20 years ago. And he and I started working together in 2002. So that's quite a long time. And the first shows aired, I think, on British television in 2003. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So Definitely. And, yeah, it's certainly been a journey for you, I can imagine, uh, going uh, along that route. Uh, but as you say, tardigrades are so resilient. So uh, perhaps there's some parallels there uh, which could be drawn uh, between QI and the tardigrade. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but you're certainly right. Uh, they are almost indestructible. Uh, as you say, they can be found from Mariana Trench from Antarctica to, I believe we now think there's some on the moon as well, uh, which we brought over. Yeah. Some of the latest, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're all, they're also sort of endearingly hopeless. Then, um, as the, as their name suggests, they're not very quick. Mm. So, whereas you would imagine, you know, lots of lots of animals are, you know have some sort of superpower. The, the tardigrade superpower is that they have this one incredible um, ability, which is that if you remove a tardigrade from water, it um, it doesn't die; it dries up like a sort of, you know, a granule of instant coffee. And it stays in a state of suspended animation, um, which is pretty extraordinary. But they now think that that state of suspended animation can last maybe a century. It can literally be in a, in a sort of crispy little, as I say, granule form. You add water and it comes back to life. Now, this is becoming, you know, this is the tardigrade, then it's becoming more, almost more philosophical. It's pushing the boundaries of what we actually know life to be. What is life? If, 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 if something can live in a state of suspended animation for a century, what is it that separates living things from non-living things? So immediately we start with a kind of funny little thing that looks like a tiny sort of rumpled leg warmer with little claws and a strange little sort of proboscis as a, as, as a mouth. And you're already at the, the, one of the deep secrets of the universe, which is, I guess, when we started QI, which what John and I were interested in doing. It's how can you ask questions about the world that yield more interesting answers? And what are the answers that, that in, in the end, that are interesting? They tend to be the ones that always quote the great Danish physicist Niels Bohr. He says, you know, trivial truths, the opposite of a trivial truth is false. But he said... The opposite of a great truth is also true. So it's a kind of paradox. Um, so, and immediately we have this sort of paradox with the tardigrade is it's, um, it's very, very small, but it can apparently live almost indefinitely forever. And we actually now know there are species of 
on what they're what, what they actually are now they're kind of um they're like species of coral i think they, they reverse their process they go backwards and can can live forever kind of immortal uh so it's these little bits of um of stuff that we don't know about that we don't get taught um in in school in biology or that don't even that often turn up on sort of wonderful wildlife documentaries those are the bits of the natural world that really intrigue me definitely and i mean that's philosophy of what you've been doing at qi for as you say 18 years thereabouts yeah. trying to find a subject and uh, saying if you look at it in sufficient depth and then it has to become interesting sure that is that that is the the first rule of of, of, of qi is that Everything is interesting if you look at it long enough and hard enough. Definitely. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, the ton state, this cryptobiosis uh, that the tardigrades undergo. Uh, so they, uh, what they do is they secrete this sugar uh, casing around themselves. And uh, you're right, they can stay like that for decades, possibly centuries, uh, without uh, any uh, damage coming to themselves or to their DNA. Uh, so I was actually reading a little while ago uh, about some uh, work they did, uh, scientists, I believe it was a Japanese research group uh, that were taking uh, the uh, protein coding DNA uh, from the tardigrades and applying that to humans. Uh, so they were able to uh, make these humans, I think it's 40% more resistant to X-ray damage to their DNA. So it's like, if we can take uh, this uh, inside from the tardigrades, then we could potentially become these X-Men, superhumans. Uh, so it's an interesting thought. It, it is. I mean, you know, and, and people, um, I know people uh, often run sort of fearfully away from these things, but, you know, you, you'll know about the interesting work that's been done with, um, you know, the spider silk and uh, spider silk and goats, <laughs> I think. Because spider silk is one of those other wonder substances that, that if we really understood the physics of, we would be, you know, it would give us massive advantage, just like nanotechnology, you know, we, 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 this, the, the, this, this area. And I think what, what you're, you're touching on again there is, is this idea that we have always looked to the natural world, both metaphorically and, and in reality as, as sort of inspiration. So set free our imaginations that we look at the things that creatures can do that are, are, are almost unthinkable for humans. And in fact, the, 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 it's not unthinkable. Yes, I, I suppose the, the, the Frankenstein risk is always there. People worry about these things. But to some degree, we're all kind of Frankensteins anyway. That's how evolution works, right? Um, you know, the more we understand about what used to be uh, kind of laughingly called junk DNA, the more we realize that we have within us all kinds of potentials that are not being expressed because we don't need them because evolution has sort of turned them off within us. But all that stuff about kind of working on chickens to turn them back into dinosaurs fascinates me i mean you know there's a kind of an interesting thing isn't it that the way that the natural world the natural world mostly kind of works but we we really struggle with the idea of it being in a flow process that things are continually changing and evolving that 99 percent of all species are extinct you know that have ever existed we can only ever see this tiny little bit of the pattern ourselves i mean that's i guess where a lot of the kind of um, environmental kind of concern and activism is that we've seen such an unprecedented amount of change and impact on the environment in the last hundred years 
that is actually an observable in, re, in our real time. I think that does give you an amazing impetus to, to think differently and to come up with more creative solutions to, to the future. Yes, and uh, we've talked so much about the abilities of tardigrades. Uh, you mentioned, I think, immortal jellyfish. Yes, the immortal jellyfish. That's, of course, what they, that's what they are. But they go backwards, right? Yes. They grow to uh, add a hold and then, they, and then they shrink and they turn back down to polyps again. This is really extraordinary. And, I mean, I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a biologist, but I know that the whole, the whole science of ageing is, is absolutely fascinating in that the two great mysteries, why have we evolved? Why is sexual reproduction, why has that evolved? As something that is more efficient. I mean, a lot of tardigrades um, are self-fertilizing, so a lot of them are sort of female only. And some of them mate in a very strange, the females have got sort of, uh, you know, they have got kind of proboscis that they stick into the male and suck out the sperm, so it's a sort of strange inversion of the usual. Um, I mean, they also have the most spectacularly beautiful eggs, like they, they, those tardigrade eggs look like incredible kind of geometric patterns and um, uh, rather like... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the houses that Amoeba built. Those are also really beautiful. Look like sort of cool 1950s cars. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, the, the, two, to, the two mysteries, uh, ageing and sexual reproduction. Why should things get old? It's such a deep and powerful kind of metaphor for us. And yet when you sort of step back from it, you think, you know, a lot of things last a lot longer than we do. You know, I'm, I've got an 800-year-old tree in my garden and I, I get such an amazing amount of just pleasure watching it and thinking about it and thinking about its, it, its own sense of time. And obviously, we, the more we learn about trees and communication and mycelial um, uh, connections under the soil, we, the more we sort of begin to realise that we grow up with a very sort of narrow way of looking at, at, at the way nature works and our own part within it. It, 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 you know, we're, we're an important part of it now because we're we've had the biggest the biggest impact on the on the whole of uh, nature that probably any species I think it would be fair to say that any species has ever had, which comes with certain responsibilities. I think. Precisely, yes. And uh, you talked about aging. Uh, I've been doing some research into this for my book, and uh, I believe uh, that we now have much of the technology uh, to. Uh, start reversing that, so uh, altering these uh, telomeres, they're called, uh, which are like these uh, biological clocks of the cells. Uh, the challenge then is to get all these side effects. So uh, you have to deal with the increased cancer risk. You have to deal with uh, everything else that's going on. So we're looking at elephants and naked mole rats, uh, continuing this trend towards biomimicry uh, to be able to counter that. So, uh, I mean, when uh, scientists first started finding out about uh, the tardigrades' incredible abilities, they did attribute it actually to stealing it from other animals. And so uh, there was a very poorly done study, I think, which found that about 20% of the DNA uh, material uh, in tardigrades was foreign, so it was from other animals. And they believed this is what gave them these special abilities. Uh, so to be able to go into this tonne state, which is now uh, pertinently in COVID times, you know, inspiring vaccine transport, things like that, uh, to be able to survive in outer space or in the Mariana Trench or being baked in an oven, all these things. Yeah, but taken down to within a degree of absolute zero, which is... <laughs> um, 
bombarded with massive doses of radiation. I mean, that's why, again, they, I, there's something slightly heroic about them because you know, we've given them a hard time. We've tried our best to, to, destroy, to destroy them. You know, thus far, they seem to be extraordinarily resistant to it, the, the worst that we can throw at them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, exactly. And Elliot, it's sort of, don't you feel that there's some kind of hope in that? You know, because we're so used to the narrative of how much we've destroyed. But actually, anybody who spends any time in a garden that you're trying to get some species to work and others to not work, right? Which is essentially what gardening is. It's some sort of strange sort of force of, of will um, coming up. But you can see the approaching quality of nature to completely reinvent itself, to adapt, to change, to, to cope with almost anything. You know, I'm an enthusiast and an optimist. And I think that we have to step back a little bit and learn and watch. The more we observe, one of my great insights this year um, it's watching that wonderful documentary on the octopus by uh, Craig Foster called My Octopus Teacher, which is on Netflix. Um, and he does this amazing thing. Um, you know, he's, I, actually, I, I met him a long time ago when he made an extraordinary film about the Bushman called The Great Dance, which was, he filmed The Running Hunt, which is this remarkable feat in, you know, hotter even than, uh, than Australia in the Kalahari desert you know they will run a kudu and they will run and run and run and eventually the kudu will collapse but what it was really about was about tracking and about about a human hunter-gatherer culture that has been around since the dawn of our species and how uh, you know they connect with the environment by looking and observing things that we wouldn't even notice anymore Anyway, cut forward 20 years, Craig is, is you know, he's had a, had a rough time. He can't film anymore. He's depressed. He starts swimming in the, in the kelp forest just off the coast. And um, he makes a genuine friendship with an octopus. And over the course of a year, films this octopus uh, and the octopus's life. And there is a, there's some incredibly touching scenes. He never names the octopus, so it doesn't sort of fall into the anthropomorphic but it appears to show joy, recognition, problem solving. And all that comes really from quietly being in an environment and observing. And I think that our new relationship with nature has to be much more about being quiet and watching and observing. And, I, and like all good science is, right, you know, it's about piling up data and not researching conclusions. It's just, let's actually see what's going on here. Precisely, yeah. And on the subject of octopuses, I believe it's Brian Cox, uh, who refuses to eat them because he's uh, met them in the wild. He's seen how intelligent they are. I think they have the record for Rubik's Cube solving at the time. It's a cheek, it's have eight arms, but still, I think that counts. Uh, so they are so, so intelligent. And yeah, there's so much we can learn. And yet, if you were going to suggest an alien life form, I mean, an octopus brain is basically, you know, sublet across its limbs, across its body. It's essentially a liquid animal. It changes color, it changes shape, it changes texture. It has superpowers that they are almost beyond our comprehension when you, you look at them. There's a, pit, there's a bit in the film where the octopus is playing with the fish. It's not doing anything. It's not trying to catch them. It's just, it looks like it's having fun. Really interesting stuff, I think. Definitely, and they can still surprise us. And they can grow back their limbs, by the way, as well. You know. <laughs> That's definitely an ability we need as humans. So that's on the tick list for biomimicry. 
<laughs> uh, but they're such incredible creatures. I yeah. had a question for you on the subject of tardigrades. Uh, so we've been talking most of this show about how incredibly uh, resilient they are. And <laughs> I read a paper a little while ago, which I managed to dig up uh, before the show, uh, where the scientists were asking, what would it take to kill all the tardigrades on Earth? So I, I'm, I'm, you may have read this paper, but I'm going to ask you that question. What would it take to wipe out all the tardigrades? <laughs> I haven't, but it, it, it's a kind, there is a kind of a theme. We're always trying to kill them for some reason. <laughs> well, I think that's how you find the interesting answers with tardigrades. We know what they can survive. What can't they survive? That's true. Yeah. So what do you think? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they're probably not. I mean, acid wouldn't be good, right? So there must be things that will dissolve them. Um, I mean, I suppose I, I could answer kind of facetiously and say, you know, lack of parental love, <laughs> lack of validation from other tardigrades, loneliness. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, also, I'm, I'm guessing this is in their sort of um, what's called as the ton state. A kind of a, a live tardigrade must be vulnerable to predation. Um, yes. Yeah. Look, yeah. And, and, you know, you could get 100,000 in a pint. And as I said, they are a bit hopeless because they basically depend on water to be splashed around to get from A to B. That's one of the reasons that they think that they've developed, um, you know, the self-fertilization thing, because it's quite possible for tardigrades not to find other tardigrades. If they... So I'm, I'm guessing they don't, they, they don't care whether humans survive or not. They, they don't care about that. I'm, and and I'm, I'm guessing they're probably, as I say, if, there's, if all they need is water and some, some degree of nutrition, but they can live, you know, in, in a ton state. How, yeah, it's not exactly immortality, but it's pretty good. Yeah, you are very, very close. Uh, some firm logic there, uh, but not quite at it. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of what it would take uh, to kill a tardigrade themselves, and this is a one tardigrade, all tardigrades on Earth, so it's a challenge, and they are all in a ton state, we're saying, yeah, yeah. Uh, to make this even harder. Uh, but yeah, researchers have a bunch of numbers and really you have to vaporize the ocean uh, to do it. Uh, that's how it's going to be done. Uh, because even <laughs> if we had a nearby supernova explode uh, that vaporized the atmosphere, those living in the Mariana Trench would still make it through. Uh, so that's what we need to do. And I think it came out as uh, 560 septillion joules of energy. Uh, so that's uh, human wow. energy consumption at current rates for a million years, uh, or I think it's one in eight million uh, asteroid collisions from the solar system. So you really, really, really big asteroid uh, could probably do it as well. Uh, but it's not easy. I'm thinking, yeah, that, this, I was going to say, this is, this is turning very quickly into a, into a great science fiction plot, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it's also, it'd be fair to say that we'd be long gone before the tardigrades, right? That always gives me some comfort that the tardigrades, are, if, if, if life on Earth is going to survive, I, I'm, I'm putting my money on them to be one of the, the torchbearers for life um, if there is a, another extinction event. Although, you know, we're in one, are we not? Well, I think what people don't recognise about extinction events as well is even, say, in the KT event, you may have 50% randoms wiped out. That means 50% yeah. get through, or 80% means 20% get through. It's never much more than that, sure. I think 90% most. And I think also people don't really think about the timescale. I mean, it's not like the, any of these extinction events were, were like happened on an after, one afternoon. I mean, they, they tended to be 
spread out over, you know, at least in human terms, relatively elongated period of time. Mm. Uh, uh, not massively long in terms of the, the, the fossil record or the, or the, uh, the, 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 the age of the earth, but in, you know, in the, in the sort of three school years and 10, you know, the <laughs> KT event was, was lasted a fair few years. Well, tardigrades themselves have been around since the Cambrian, uh, yeah. 541 million years ago. So they've seen a lot. They've seen there. a lot. Exactly. You sort of feel if you, that um, if, if tardigrades did tell stories, they would have a, they'd have a pretty extraordinary story to tell. Definitely. But talking about stories, uh, the other subject I wanted to talk on, and uh, we've spent a long time talking about tardigrades, fascinating as they are. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to touch on is uh, obviously recently you've been working with Unbound and uh, Unbound is trying to, uh, I guess, crowdsource the book publishing. Uh, so yeah. what led you to that and uh, what is maybe your favourite book? If you could speak on that as well. The first bit's easy. I mean, uh, what started, I mean, I was, you know, perfectly happy researching tardigrades and other things on QI, but I'd come from the world of books. I'd been a bookseller at Waterstones, big UK book chain, and I'd run a couple of publishing companies and then QI happened, which was the perfect, uh, I sort of ended up being a researcher and a writer rather than a, a publisher. But I guess I'd always, I'd always been interested. And, I, and then I suppose 2008, nine, the recession happened and a couple of good friends had had books turned down and, and just had that sort of sense that actually the, the way this industry works is illogical. You've got people who are interested in things and you've got people who are writing things if you could somehow plug the enthusiasm of, of readers into the talent of writers or the talent of writers into the enthusiasm of readers, um, you would get a lot more interesting books into the marketplace. Um, and I guess at that stage, we, we, I think we'd just done the first iteration of the QI website and we were hanging around with some tech people and I came across the site called Kickstarter, which had just started. Kickstarter is brilliant, but the, one of the problems with books is that Authors need a, quite a lot of hand-holding. They don't really, you know, the idea of printing, publishing, distributing books yourself isn't one that most authors can really. So it seemed to me you needed a hybrid between a traditional publishing house, but you needed the energy and the excitement of crowdfunding to, um, to sort of enfranchise a, a whole load of ideas and, and, and authors that might otherwise not, not get through. So uh, it seemed to me like a pretty straightforward idea, but at the time you think we were trying to introduce something that was so outlandishly impossible and we were told by lots of people it couldn't possibly work anyway but it's 10 years later and 500 books published later we're um, yeah we're going uh, going great guns and, uh, and we've published some you know lots of lots of books that have gone on to win prizes and and have been huge bestsellers and lots of other books that have only found a small market but would not have existed if we didn't exist so i still mostly do a bit fact research for qi now Twitter feed. Um, so I'm not writing for the shows at the moment, but um, uh, and also the the, the, uh, the, the podcast, which um, which spun out of the research team that I used to run, and is now one of the most successful podcasts. The No Such Thing as a Fish. I remember watching them, thinking there must be a good books pod podcast somewhere, um, and I ended up doing a, a thing called Backlisted, which is the, uh, uh, the the podcast I run, which is based on the idea that most people have a favourite book that isn't new, 
you know, fine definition. There's a lot of, of new books being published and unbounded, cheerfully pushing more out into the marketplace. But the, often the books that really, really mark people's lives are, are books that they've either discovered in childhood or adolescence or at a certain key moment in their lives. And um, so that's backlisted, the backlist, the idea of there being this thing that's on the shelves, that the, the sort of the hinterland. Um, and we just thought there, were, there, were, there was nobody doing that. So we started that five years ago and it's now, I think we're about to pass our two millionth download. So it's quite, quite exciting. Um, now you asked me what my favourite book is. Oh no, it's just an impossible, possible task, Elliot. Um, there are so many great books. I mean, I could say on one level, the 1911 version of Encyclopedia Britannica, because it's just such a huge, massive kind of like the, like the marble halls of learning or, or the Oxford English Dictionary, which is, you know, the whole of the language. Well, it's not, though. That's the thing. It's not the whole of the language. But th th those answers are kind of cheat, cheat answers, really, because they're just those are big, brilliant, interesting reference books. I'm, I probably always come back to a book that, uh, that I've I probably read it three or four times. It's a novel by Charles Dickens called Great Expectations. Um, I... I think I love that book because it has all the things that people say they love about Dickens. You know, it's got very funny characters and it's got great scenes of urban life and rural life. It's got great writing about landscape. But the things that often people don't like about Dickens, like the characters are a bit too obvious, a bit too, um, a, a, a bit too predictable. It doesn't do that. It's got an amazingly dark and powerful story at the heart of it which is about getting older and how life is often disappointing you know Pip has great expectations and mostly those expectations aren't met that it seems to me that that's that's an interesting thing it's a that's a big theme <laughs> it's a big theme which he kind of delivers on and he wrote classic Dickens he wrote two endings the first ending which I think is the best was not a happy ending and the second one everybody said oh you can't make it not happy Charles so he re rewrote it with a happy ending which is it's lovely but it's just kind of doesn't really doesn't really fit with the rest of the book but I love part that's part of the reason I also love that book if you're thinking about different ways of publishing you know the 19th century they were really smart they did everything they serialized things they bound things up they were always selling the same bit of intellectual property in as many different ways as they could you know deluxe editions cheap editions for everybody so that's a book that I can't imagine ever not having in my life or not ever being interested in. I mean, I haven't read it for a few years, but I probably will read it again at some point. Um, when I was a, just when I was a teenager, I think I read Lord of the Rings every year for seven years and still have a kind of a deep fondness for that. Although, uh, you know, probably wouldn't be reading it every summer now. But um, yeah, I think books are, like I say, the books that tend to move us um, tend not to be the ones that we've just bought and read. I mean, rereading Great Expectations after like 20 years, maybe even 30 years, and as an older person, was a totally different experience to having to, you know, having to read it as a student. So it's like you get more out of it the fourth time you read it than you do the first, which, I mean, much as I love, you know, thrillers by Lee Child, that's probably not what, what you would say about his books. No, very much so. And I'm all for the classics myself. I've been dipping into uh, Francis Buckland's book. Uh, it's Curiosities in Natural History. Uh-huh. Yes. 
What a what a no. Well, that you see, I could have chosen that because that is such a great book. And he was what I love about Buckland is uh, his. He literally put his mouth, you know, where where other people's money was. I mean, he you know he ate everything, he tried everything, and he was he was also I think a, he was a genuine enthusiast. I mean, I I discovered um, uh, that he was. Again, you know, people get very. I think he was responsible for introducing uh, a, a trout to India. You know, every, he was he was fascinated in um, he, you know sort of job in fisheries. But the idea of we've got the whole of India to play with, and we've got all these amazing rivers. Why don't we put some trout in them, and then we can sort of you know, a it's sport, but also there's maybe money to be made. There's something about that kind of Victorian endeavour which I still find really, really inspiring. You know, we probably would would be a, a little bit, um, uh, you know, frown a little bit at some of his, uh, his sort of views now. But I think, like I say, an enthusiast and a, uh, and a great natural historian and a great writer about some very funny stories in that book as well. And I think his great claim to fame was to, uh, to be able to identify animals by their urine which is something I don't think <laughs> I guess done today. It's a lost talent. They really got their hands dirty, those guys, right? I mean, that's what I love. They were, they were, they were, they lived their subject in a way that I find very inspiring. Precisely, yeah. I was in South Africa at the start of this year, uh, doing uh, filming safaris, and uh, there's lots of leopards in the area, and I can tell you from first-hand experience, uh, their leopard piss smells a lot like uh, cheese and onion uh, Doritos. So it's very, very strongly about all popcorn, uh, either one. Uh, but it's something you don't consider. Yeah, I, I, popcorn comes up quite a lot. The, the, the binturong, that strange animal, apparently that's the, the strong, smells strongly of, um, of popcorn. And um, the great fishing writer, Chris Yates, said that uh, apparently a big carp smells like orange marmalade. Okay. I, I remember got quite interested in things that smell that, that smell different from what you that you would imagine. So animals, animal smells, but again, smell. You know, you know that great theory about human brain shrinking and dog's brain, you know, wolf brain shrinking down. That we kind of we um, developed a symbiotic relationship with with dogs fourteen thousand years ago, maybe, um, and as a result, we sort of outsourced quite a few of the skills that we would have had you know so we we sort of slightly shrunk our own brains by outsourcing smelling and tracking and those kind of things to dogs really interesting stuff love, love all that definitely and antelope smell like cheese i believe that's the other one i could think of off the top of my head really yeah yeah there's lots and lots of smells you would expect in nature you might know this being in australia but that the big kangaroo Kangaroos. smells of curry yeah. yeah that's what i've heard Definitely. So, so interesting uh, looking at nature through these different lenses, these senses we don't use because we're so reliant on sight. If you look at hearing or smell. Yes, yes, we're we're over-reliant on sight, aren't we? Awesome. Well, John, it's been a a long conversation, but a fascinating one, no doubt. Well, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure our audience has as well. Any excuse, any excuse to bang on about tardigrades, yes. Elliot, is just makes always makes me very happy, and uh, I love what you're doing. Love what you love the show, getting people to talk about uh, talk about the stuff that they, they they really love, that they're really interested in, they're really passionate about. I love this idea of long time. You know, 
what are we actually living through at the moment? Is it an extinction event or, you know, how are we going to use the natural world in ways that, uh, like, you know, we've always done it. We've always fashioned tools to uh, enable our own survival through watching and using the stuff that animals, the natural world has given us. So really it's, you know, it's as, it's as amazing a time to be alive as any, I think. Definitely. Here in Australia, uh, the uh, fire hawks, as they're called, uh, the black lights mostly, uh, supposedly taught uh, the Aboriginals how to use fire. So things like that. So, so much we can learn yeah. from the basics to uh, CRISPR technology, gene editing, things like that, and bacteria. So moving into the age of the extinction, everything else is to come. I think tide grace uh, a wonderful animal uh, to talk about. <laughs> Okay, John. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you today. Uh, we'll be back with the Human Nature podcast next week, uh, so make sure to tune in then. And uh, in the meantime, stay safe and do try and be a better animal. Thank you all and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.